Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warning, and joining me on the line, as always, is Ethan Zachs. Ethan, I have some exciting news for you, my friend. Oh, my goodness. What is it? I have downloaded my first episode of Come On In Survivors. Ooh. I listened halfway through. And for those of you that don't know, this is Ethan's new Survivor podcast. I listened halfway through and was hooked, watched episode of one of season 41 of Survivor, finished the podcast episode, and I am in, baby. Oh my God, I'm so happy. Thanks so much, dude. Yeah, it was so good. I really enjoyed your podcast and episode one grabbed me. So I think I'm going to listen to every episode and and watch along this season on Survivor. It was great. Sweet. Yeah. Uh, For folks out there, thanks for giving me the spot to to shill for the My Other Podcast, Ben. Uh, (laughs) Well, I knew you were too polite to do it for yourself. So I wanted to set you up. (laughs) So I'm doing this uh, Survivor recap and strategy analysis podcast with my very dear friend um, who used to, for for folks who've been listening for a long time, if you remember, uh, we used to have an intro to the podcast that was like, you're listening to another episode of Lords of Limited, blah, blah, blah. And that's my friend, Charlie. <laughs> he's got a great podcast voice. Um, and he's also like a great game theorist. And so we really like dive into the strategy of the social aspects of the game and recap the show every week. And it's a lot of fun. And I really believe like, you know, I get a lot of people who are like, you know, on stream when I talk about it, who are like, oh, my God, I can't believe that show's still on 41 seasons. I mean, yeah, it's been on a long time. They do two seasons a year for 20 years. So that's how they got there. But I really believe like if you're a spiky magic player, I think you will really like Survivor. And I, I think this season so far is shaping up to be a good one. And then you got another uh, hour of Ethan in your your listening buds every week. So um, if you're interested, check it out. Come on in Survivors. It's on, you know, every other place you download your podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, etc. And as a new Survivor listener watcher, I will confirm I've watched one other season that Ethan bullied me into watching. And <laughs> the podcast is awesome, not only because you and Charlie have great chemistry, which you do, but it gave me a whole nother level of appreciation, I think, for watching the next episode of Survivor. So I'm super excited to watch episode two and then see what you all think on the podcast. It's going to be great. Awesome. Well, thanks for thanks for that, Ben. That makes me really happy that you're listening. Well, we've got a great episode in store. Ben's like, you know, stretching his legs. He's ready for fall break week. Um, and we're talking all things magic. And he's got a great episode lined up for us here uh, that you really dove into. I don't know, we got five, six pages of show notes on understanding Innistrad Midnight Hunt through your incredible lens of synergy theory. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. So if you're new to synergy theory, this was an article I wrote when we very first started writing for Channel Fireball. It's actually my first article. Much like Brian Wong, I wanted to get the best stuff out there in case CFB was like, who is this scrub writing for us? (laughs) Just cut the cord, you know? Um, So this is sort of a companion to pair with quadrant theory. And I think, you know, quadrant theory should be top of the line, top of the heap, the first thing you go to. But after that, and you feel like you've mastered quadrant theory card evaluation, I think synergy theory is a great tool to pair alongside with it to help you understand synergy because it's a really difficult concept to teach, right? We say draft decks, not cards, all that other sort of stuff. So um, this is a tool I think to use and we'll talk about it in the episode and just apply it to things that are going on in Midnight Hunt. So yeah, really jazzed to talk about this. Yeah, so just get a couple housekeeping things out of the way before we dive into a lot of goodies for this episode. Uh, first things first, the Patreon page, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited, where you can go to give back to the show if you so choose. Got a lot of stuff over there with reward tiers. We got access to the Discord for everybody. And then as you move up the ranks, uh, we're talking getting access to the show notes in advance of the episode, getting access to our draft logs and deck picks, getting access to a private section of the Discord, and even monthly coaching sessions with me or Ben. So a lot of really cool stuff over there. Um, If any of that sounds of interest to you, would highly recommend getting in on the Patreon. And of course, we want to welcome our new patrons to the fold the first week that they join. So this week, we're welcoming Sonny, Jason, Chris F., Robert, Pekka, Howard, and Chris W. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. Show is also brought to you by Channel Fireball. Channelfireball.com, best place to go for anything and everything you need magic related, as well as a boatload of other games. They just recently launched the CFB Marketplace. We've been talking about it the last few weeks. CFB Madness is still going on, where every $10 you spend over at the Channel Fireball Marketplace, purchasing things potentially from your own local game store. And if they're not on there, you should encourage your local game store to get on the CFB Marketplace. Um, that enters you into a giveaway. There are daily giveaways, weekly giveaways. There's a huge giveaway at the end of the month for a Black Lotus and some other sweet swag from other games. And also friendly reminder that MTG Las Vegas is still happening towards the end of November. So if that's your jam and you feel comfortable going to an event, please consider heading out to MTG Las Vegas. It's going to be great. There's going to be a sealed Crimson Vow release weekend tournament. While CFB Madness is still happening, I have to check in, Ben. What? Where are we at with the Beta Lands? Oh, I'm still, you know, it's <laughs> never going to happen. As you as uh, you described me, what was the word that you used that was politer than tightwad? Thrifty? Frugal. 
Frugal, yes. That's slightly lower down on the scale than thrifty, I think. A scouts are thrifty. Yeah, I have not purchased Beta Islands yet, but I'm still, you know, I think the fantasy of doing it is actually better than pulling the trigger on the purchase. All right. Well, we'll see. Maybe maybe, uh, maybe next year for your birthday, I'll give you a nudge. I'll buy you like a playset. Or something, oh, or and then I'll you like to go do buy, it. Buy one of each, and then you'll have to complete the the set for yourself. That would, so. that would be the worst. <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> Just a birthday present that's like here's a here's a bill for like two thousand dollars or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So if you are unlike me and you want to buy some cards, use code LOL when you head over <laughs> to the CFP Marketplace and support Channel Fireball. Genuine ad. I won't be buying anything, but you should. <laughs> Um, so for folks who haven't listened to, I think there are two probably pieces of content, maybe not necessary, but that we would suggest checking out before diving into this episode. If you haven't listened to Quadrant Theory episode with Brian Wong on LR, definitely go and check that out. Episode 184 over there. And if you haven't listened to our Synergy Theory episode, our initial Synergy Theory episode, that's 174, we'd recommend that as well. But we'll do a brief synopsis here. So what do we got going on with Synergy Theory, Ben? Well, I think even before Synergy Theory, if you don't know what Quadrant Theory is, so that's looking at cards in their own vacuum of is this a good magic card? And you're trying to evaluate them in four stages of the game. When you're developing, so that's like the early turns of the game. When you're at parity, which is essentially a board stall where neither you nor your opponent has much of an advantage. When you're ahead and when you're behind. And the most valuable of those four quadrants is when you're behind, right? Because it's difficult to catch up. So, you know, a card that maybe puts a creature on the battlefield and kills one of your opponent's creatures. That really helps you stabilize when you're behind. So those get super high grades on quadrant theory. Yeah, for sure. And then synergy theory, I sort of created as an homage to quadrant theory. So there's also going to be four quadrants in synergy theory. And this is trying to take a look at a card in the context of the format and the other cards that are around it and how well it plays with those other cards. So you're going to look at cards under synergy theory in four lenses as well. First of which is mechanics. How many of the mechanics in the set does it interact well with? Does it have super powerful interactions with one specific mechanic maybe? And then the next lens is on color cards. So for example, how well does a red card play with other red cards? And then the third one is off color cards. How well does, for example, a blue card play with cards of black, white, green, red, you know, how many off color cards does it work with? Or are there super powerful interactions with maybe just a few cards? And then finally, we have strategy compatibility, which is the fourth quadrant. And it's more of a a behind the scenes type of synergy where it's not necessarily, you know, you combine these two cards and magic happens. It's rather a little more subtle in that, you know, maybe these three cards work pretty well together, but they're not necessarily designed to be synergistic. Something like um, I had a deck with Burn Down the House, which deals five damage to all creatures, right? And then I also had two Drown Yard Amalgams in there as kind of finishers. So it was really nice that those are three sixes and then they survive my Burn Down the House and are going to help me close out the game. That sort of thing. Just your cards working well together towards a cohesive goal. You know, maybe that's all your cards being aggressive or all your cards being defensive, just smaller niche interactions like that. Yeah. And I think we'll dive into this a little bit later, but that can also work, I think, in the reverse in terms of, you know, we think when you think about white being such a creature based aggressive strategy and red being a spells based can be aggressive if you have festival crashers can be controlling if you've got, you know, big spells like the aforementioned burn down the house. And that can also fall under that lens as well. All right. So let's dive into Midnight Hunt, which is a super synergistic set, but it's awkwardly synergistic, right? Because all of the cards that are synergistic are also very powerful. Something like Organ Hoarder. That's just a great magic card. And yet it also has a lot of synergy with all the other good cards in the set. Right. I mean, Organ Hoarder and Eccentric Farmer as being like Organ Hoarder light, as I've been championing for the past couple weeks, as you championed in your uh, newsletter piece yesterday for folks who are not signed up for the CFB newsletter, please do so. It's free. It's easy. CFB extra. Just get give them your email and then you get this nice little piece of content in your inbox. And I got that yesterday morning, which was very nice. Um, but yeah, so you just get to, you know, draw a card off of it, but also then bin either your disturbed cards or your flashback cards and then your drawing cards or your, you know, putting creatures in the card to fuel your death bonnet sprout or putting a land in the graveyard so that farmer can get it back, etc. Like there's just a lot of, you know, you really want to maximize your graveyard in this format, I think, unless you're facing diagraph hordes, which we'll get to in a little bit. Right. And so the best cards in a format are going to be cards that score well under quadrant theory and synergy theory. And a lot of those cards like Organ Hoarder are just good magic cards. You don't need to put them under synergy theory to know 
hey, this is a powerful card. When you start to apply both quadrant theory and synergy theory, you start to see, oh, wow, this card is really, really good. But then there's also a lot of, you know, under the radar cards in this set, like Festival Crasher or Lunark Veteran or Flip the Switch that wouldn't necessarily get a good score under quadrant theory, I don't think, but they do score very well on synergy theory. Speaking of Lunark Veteran, did you see that our boy Carl Two Duck Cubed has has graduated to a podcast of his own? I did. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to listen yet, but I am excited. It sounded like like Looney V got some love. Yeah, I haven't listened to that one. I listened to their first one. So I'm talking about the podcast Mystical Dispute with G Guards and now uh, Carl on there. And they're they're taking a really cool turn for a podcast with like just examining one card and taking two sides on it and looking at it under the lens of data as well. And was, I, the episode on Consider I thought was great. So I'm excited to listen to the argument about Lunark Veteran as well. Yeah, and they're very short, right? Like 10 to 15 minutes. That's about my drive to school. So I need to get on there and uh, give those a listen. Yeah, nice little little content snacks. All right. So I think one of the important things for synergy theory, before we dive into, you know, those four quadrants of synergy theory, you have to really know what the context of the format is, I think, to really be able to apply synergy theory. So one of the things we're going to talk about are, you know, what Alex, I think, coined this term is the rules of engagement for Midnight Hunt, which is just sort of, you know, based on the good cards in the format, what do you have to do to be able to win in the format? And you really need to know that bigger picture. But in addition to just talking about what those rules are, we're going to kind of talk about why we know those are the rules and maybe how you can figure them out for yourselves. So first up here, we have black is heavily contested at the moment. Be ready to fight for it if you want to draft it. And I think this sort of stems from that that week one or week zero, um, blue black being the best deck and blue black being forcible. And then I think people figuring it out, but black more so than blue, because I think black is sort of obviously powerful with the three removal spells. I think if you're a more casual drafter, then you're going to recognize the power of Eaten Alive and Defenestrate and Olivia's Midnight Ambush a lot more readily than you are going to recognize the power of something like Baithook Angler or Revenge of the Drowned. Yes, absolutely. And we should talk about how these rules can change as the meta adapts, right? So Black was not heavily contested in week one of the format, but here week four, week five, whatever it is, it is heavily contested. And it might circle back around to where Black is not heavily contested and you can draft black and if that's the case then you should yeah you know i'm a big data boy now ben so do you know what the second highest win rate common is in the set behind organ hoarder i have no idea wasn't it revenge of the drown at one point maybe it was but now it's ecstatic awakener like by a bit Ooh, i like it ecstatic awakener is gas ecstatic awakener is gas it's so funny because i was talking about this on stream i was like in my mind still this is where my like my personal play versus what the data suggests it differs and it's hard for me to wrap my head around is that Diagraph Horde feels so much more punishing to me than Ecstatic Awakener. But I think there may be some cognitive dissonance there that like, I'm not really remembering the times that I just got two for one by Awakener. I, but I definitely remember the times where like the game effectively ends when Diagraph Horde hits the battlefield. Well, the difference between those two cards, right, is that Diagraph Horde invalidates entire strategies, which you are likely playing, and Ecstatic Awakener does not, which feels much worse, right? So if you're playing red-green spells, and you know, you've just done the thing where you cast your Ecstatic Farmer, and maybe you milled, you know, a flashback card, as well as your Seize the Storm, and then your opponent on turn five casts Diagraph Horde and undoes all that work and gets a huge advantage on the board, like that feels terrible, right? Whereas yes. if they just play Ecstatic Awakener and are killing you with it, like you still feel like you're getting to do the thing your deck tried to do. One of those cards invalidates strategies and the other does not. Right. I'm likely to be drafting those strategies. So yeah, uh, but I, I did find that to be an interesting little little nugget of info. But yeah, I, I agree that this, this idea about Black being contested, I think you know, I maybe thought that this was going to eventually even out, but it doesn't seem to be doing so. I think this will probably be the case for the next couple weeks uh, of drafting this format before it goes away. Right. And you can see that, you know, how do we know that Black's heavily contested? We know that from drafting, right? And talking to other people. Like I've done drafts. I know Black's been cut a lot in my drafts. I talk to you, you draft and Black's been <laughs> cutting your drafts. And like we talk, we have a whole limited community, right? In the Lord's Limited Discord. That's how we know that this is a rule of engagement with Midnight Hunt. It's just a lot of people having a very similar experience. The next point we have here is if you're going to draft red, you need to draft red spells to really maximize the color pair. And if you don't, the creature decks really fall flat. And I also have a sub bullet point here that I think you want to make sure you're not in a spot where you're fighting over red with someone else at the table. 
Yes, I completely agree. And, you know, initially in the format, you know, we played that first week and, you know, in talking to other people through our own experiences, we all kind of decided that red was the worst color because it felt pretty bad. We knew red green was a bad deck. And I think the real innovation or the real shift was when Ryan Sachs started experimenting with spells decks and that kind of became a thing. And that really gave red an identity and a way to compete. And I think knowing that is important. And then so I think if you are pigeonholed into drafting red, or if you even like those decks and want to steer into them, you really do need to draft spells with red, I think for it to be a viable archetype. Now, that's not to say you can't win with red, white aggro or green, red, you know, creature werewolves or whatever, you know, if you get the nuts deck, but I think draft in and draft out, the most consistently powerful thing you're going to be able to do with red cards is red spells. And we'll dive into that a little bit later in the episode, looking at it under the guise of synergy theory. And that will like help illuminate the the reason why red is so successful as a spells based strategy. For sure. And so next is that blue is the best color. And the reason that that is true is that all four blue decks are very powerful, right? Blue, white, check. Great. Blue, black, zombies, check. If you get it, awesome. Blue, red. Now that we know that spells is really good and really draftable, check for sure. And then blue-green. Also, you just get raw card quality in blue-green. All four of those color pairs are just great. And I think the other reason, not only because the four color pairs are great, but the other reason that blue is so good is that it gets to be at the intersection of the two best mechanics in the set of Decayed and Disturb. Ooh, I love that. Yeah, that's so good. Next up, we're looking at white and red, and those are colors that play with themselves best, first and foremost, right? Red cards want more red cards. White cards want more white cards. And then they start picking up things from other colors. Colors, right? White as a creature based, I think aggressive strategy is at what it wants to do at its core. And then is it okay, am I leaning towards like really aggro and picking up some coven stuff from green? Am I leaning towards, you know, maybe a little bit more grindy situations? I want more disturbed stuff when I'm pairing it with black, blue, white, I think at its best, you know, maximum disturb, then get your shipwreck sifters, etc. That type of deal. Yeah, but I think the white cards all play best with each other. And same thing for red, because the red is really deep in spells. And red really does offer you the best selection of spells for red spells. And then once you know your red spells, then you start to pull in the blue spells, or then you start to pull in the black spells, that sort of thing. Right, you figure out, oh, okay, maybe this Dryad's Revival wield, and so maybe I want to do red-green or whatever. But you really are starting first and foremost by identifying, oh, I'm getting super deep into red, or I'm getting super deep into white, and then figure out what the second pair is. And how do we know that? I feel like I know that just from playing with white cards, right? My best decks when I've been white have been deep white and have had a supporting cast of maybe Black's Removal. Or have had, you know, organ hoarders to help put my white disturb cards into the graveyard and then things like ominous roost, you know, turn my lunark veterans into great cards. But I do think if you're white, it's hard to be white as a support color. White feels like a pretty main color in the drafts I've had that have done well. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the points, as we sort of alluded to earlier with red, is that you don't want to be fighting over red cards with other people. And so when you're drafting red or when you're supposed to draft red, it should feel super open, right? It's those packs where you go, all right, I'm taking Moon Ranger Slash and then I'm going to wheel this Festival Crasher. Or I'm going to wheel this Electric Revelation. And then when that happens, you're like, okay, cool. I'm, I know that I'm one of, if not the only red drafter at the table, and that's going to lead you to having a lot of red cards to choose from for your deck, and that's going to make red your base color. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. All right, so we've talked about black, blue, white, red. Serious question, Ethan. Is green the worst color now? Because it kind of feels that way to me as I was outlining the show notes here. It really doesn't have much of an identity other than mm-hmm. Eccentric Farmer is a great card. And it's mostly a support color. Like, What does being heavy base green deck get you? I don't think it's anything, right? Well, I think the main thing to think about here for me is that other than Eccentric Farmer, I don't care about any of the commons. And there is, I think, as we've talked about previously with a card like Eccentric Farmer or Organ Hoarder or Ecstatic Awakener, like I think the casual player doesn't quite see the power level creep of these commons. And so you can get Eccentric Farmers late and that may not necessarily be a green signal. And so that makes drafting green a little awkward if you recognize the power of Farmer. But yes, beyond Eccentric Farmer, the commons don't do what you want them to do or they're not pulls in to the color, right? Next good cards are like Shadow Beast Sighting or Harvest Tide Sentry. These aren't cards that I'm, you know, sad to draft or whatever, but you know, you comprise a deck of those green cards and you're you might be in trouble. You really need power from either uncommons or rares in that color, or what I think green does best in the set is as a home for five color good stuff, with farmers and evolving wilds being your base for being able to splash around. 
Yeah, that makes total sense to me. But I mean, if you're green white, the white aggressive cards are better than the green aggressive cards, I think. And I almost think green's best home is in red green spells. Like that's where most of the green commons feel at home. And that's where you get the most bang for your buck out of Shadow Beast sighting, which I do think is the second best green common. And then blue green, you know, you've got the good blue cards and blues cards are just so much better than greens cards that you'd rather be heavy blue. And then green black just doesn't come together that often. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that's that goes back to our first point about black being overdrafted and it's just hard to get into that like it's hard to get into the most drafted color and then i think what we have now assessed as being the worst color right so moving on to the next rule we've got that you have to draft a deck that has a plan and really maximizes the power level and synergy of your cards and sometimes that's going to be broad synergy throughout your entire deck other times it's going to be more pockets of synergy with something like flip the switch playing well with other instants and cards that you know maybe cost three cmc or also make decayed zombies but in this format the cards are powerful enough and those powerful cards have enough synergy that if you just have powerful cards and no plan you're going to get steamrolled by an opponent that has those powerful cards and also uses the synergy they provide yeah i think for my money this set is more about micro synergy than macro synergy like sure you can get a good zombies deck but by and large the like you know the tribal stuff doesn't really hit right vampires is not really a deck you're trying to draft very often or a deck that comes together very often same with werewolves um so i think you know maybe zombies you could talk about but it's really more i think about maximizing the decayed stuff than it is about oh i got a bunch of blade stitch scobs and a bunch of zombies and now they're pumped up you know i think it's much more about these little pockets as we're talking about and then next up here we've also got the bang for your buck on mana spend matters a lot in this format. And that's something I've been coming around to more and more lately. Yeah. So th- this, I think, harkens back to AFR, where we talked about like it's that set was more about draft cards, not decks. And you were really just looking for the rate that you were spending for your cards. Like, what were you getting for the mana you spent? And, I, you know, one of the examples I think from Midnight Hunt is Ardent Elementalist. This is the three and a red for the two one. And when ETBs, you can buy back an instant or sorcery from your graveyard. And I think a lot of folks wonder why that ends up on the sidelines of decks that I draft or decks that I do deck techs for on stream. And it's just largely because a four mana two one body just doesn't cut it. And you really need to make sure like, sure, if I've got light up the night in my deck, then I'm looking for an Arden Elementalist to buy that back. You know, if I've got that big burn spell at rare, but you know, buying back a Defenestrate or a you know, Moon Rager slash or whatever, or burn the accursed just doesn't cut it. Well, I think knowing that sort of thing where bang for your buck spent on, you know, mana for cards matters comes from playing games and maybe you cast an ardent elementalist and then you go on to lose, you know, via tempo. I think one of the things that I just consistently see in games is that the best cards are so rawly efficient that you have yes. to com- you have to keep pace with their raw efficiency and synergy. And if you aren't, yes, like ardent elementalist is a two for one. But it's a super inefficient two for one. And there are crazy efficient two for ones (laughs) that you can assemble through synergy. Right. I mean, and just looking at we haven't even gotten to the mechanics yet, but looking at Disturb and Decay, it is just like, wow. I mean, maybe maybe Decay isn't quite a two for one or whatever, but that additional zombie does provide something, if not just two damage. Yeah. The last point here we have is that tight play is super rewarded and missing small edges can result in turning wins into losses. And I think we've heard this from the beginning. I think one of the reasons the set resonates so well with some of the top players, right? We're seeing LSV hitting Mythic number one. We're seeing Alex hitting Mythic number one. We're seeing, you know, Icky and Florida Mun and, you know, all, all these folks who are extremely talented and skillful limited players, you know, really being rewarded with that kind of tight play or that tight drafting. So certainly Carl Tuda cubed on that list as well. And I think, you know, for myself as someone who I think that's not really one of my strengths, that's always something that I'm working towards. You know, I've definitely lost games from you know, missing damage from decayed zombies, either for myself or my opponent, figuring out damage from a siege zombie and in terms of like mapping out multiple turns of who's going to win this race, ecstatic awakener turning into a four, four scob wrangler tapping stuff, devoted graph keeper tapping stuff, uh, putting counters on stuff to keep coven, whether to double spell or not for day and night flipping all of that stuff. It's a lot to track, but those like tiny, tiny mistakes where you go, Oh dang, I should have double spelled the flip or Oh dang, I I shouldn't have double spelled to not flip, you know, that kind of stuff can really be the result of you winning or losing a game. I feel very seen with that list and I don't really <laughs> like it. Whether, you know, whether or not to revenge of the drowned on your turn or whether or not to do it on your opponent's turn and their draw step and their upkeep, like 
if you pass, then it flips. And it, there's just a lot to consider with lines in this format. And it can feel very rewarding when you find when you find that super tight line and get that exact seize for lethal or whatever. But I think a lot of the times, at least for me, I sometimes I, you know, I miss out on stuff like that. Yeah, my biggest punt, I think, is when I have an instant passing with day night and turning it to night without thinking about it at all, because I just want to play at instant speed. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so before we dive into synergy theory, I think the other thing I want to take a look at is just the format defining commons and uncommons, because again, this goes back to a lot of those rules of engagement and figuring them out, right? Those rules come out of what the most powerful cards are and the most powerful cards kind of dictate you know how the format starts to shape up much like in standard or whatever is it goldspan dragon that's the name of the card right yeah that's a super busted card or alrun's epiphany is a super busted card so those dictate what's happening in the metagame right and then those decks are turning the format into you know hyper aggro or these other strategy of decks right because mid-range decks can't exist in the format where there's alrun epiphanies and goldspan dragons is that a summary of standard i feel like that's what i see on twitter wow you you really have been diving into the standard pods did i do it yeah i think i did it I think you so, might have. I mean, you're asking someone who also knows nothing about standards. So <laughs> I don't know if I'm the best person. But anyway, so for limited, those are the most powerful commons and uncommons. So we're going to take a look at those cards and kind of what they mean for the format. And I think this also harkens back to how we know what some of those rules of engagement are. So first up, public enemy number one, Diagraph Horde. This card, I have been vocal about this, I think, on the podcast that I feel a little medium about this set. I've been vocal on stream. I don't I don't think this card should have existed. It's so extremely punishing for anyone who is trying to use their graveyard as a resource. It feels so bad. You're like, oh, this is a graveyard set? Get wrecked. Yeah, this is plenty powerful as a five mana, three, four, make two decayed zombies. It does not need to interact with the graveyard at all. If I could change one thing about the set right now, that would be the nerf I would make to Diagraph for. Just not let it interact with the graveyard. And you know what? I think I want to add another rule of engagement. Right, right off the bat here talking about Diagraph Horde. You want ways to hose your opponent's graveyard. I have been fine when I draft black. If I don't get the Diagraph Hordes, I've been fine to play a copy of Rotten Reunion in my deck. My deck can usually take advantage of the two, two twos in some way. And then also just knowing that I have a way to grab some disturb stuff or flashback spell out of the yard, I think is super important. I agree. That's a great rule. And Diagraph Horde just lets you do that while also being Grave Titan. Yes. And like the decayed zombies are just absurd in the format as well. Knowing that that mechanic is powerful and how those decayed zombies are free resources just pushes Diagraph Horde over the top. Next up, we've got Eccentric Farmer and Organ Hoarder, which I think, you know, I, I think they can be coupled together enough because they do very similar things. Obviously, Organ Hoarder is more powerful because it's more consistent and can grab you a spell. But the idea here, the general idea is that they're effectively, you know, three for ones, four for ones sometimes, right? If you grab a card and then bin two things that you can cast from the yard, that is just insane amounts of power. Yes, absolutely. Next up, format defining cards. There is premium removal everywhere. And we saw this in the crash course, right? There was a great Mm -hmm. rate on removal for, you know, mana spent versus the cards that it's going to kill. And this is one of the reasons that red green werewolves just gets pushed out of the format, right? Because you can't be spending four, five, six mana on a large creature that doesn't do anything when it hits the battlefield because your opponent can so easily trade up on mana. Well, especially with the existence of Silverbolt, right? That that's just one of the the main reasons. It's like a colorless way to hose werewolves feels really bad in the format. But I agree. Even stuff like we're very wary of cards like Duel for Dominance, like, you know, it it does add power and toughness sometimes as a fight spell, but a fight spell that doesn't consistently add power and toughness. But even Duel for Dominance has impressed. Even like even Candle Trap, I've been saying that Candle Trap is good for weeks now and I stand by it. Locked in the Cemetery (laughs) a lot less so, but still like Locked in the Cemetery can do stuff in the format, can be a removal spell for you or at least a tempo play for you. Who are you and what have you done with Ethan Sachs? I'm telling, look, look, I I just, I I say it how I see it, Ben. I'm just trying to (laughs) bring the people the truth. Next up is the aforementioned Lunark Veteran, uh, the one mana one one in white that has Disturb. I mean, this card just swings games sometimes, right? With the amount of life gain that it can provide on turn one. Well, and it's hyper synergistic, right? And we're going to take a look at that a little more in depth later in the episode. But this coming down and gaining you life and knowing that if you have multiple copies of this, you get the disturb synergy, you get the life gain, all of it lets you play towards the late game and be super synergistic with something like Coven. There's just so many things this card does. And I think I want to give the Lunark Veteran the Golden Egg Award right now. How do you feel about that? Wow, you can't do that to me 
like just off the cuff. I haven't had time <laughs> to think about it. Okay. Um, that's my nomination. Well, that's your nomination. We'll revisit that next week with 50 takes. <laughs> next up, we've got Festival Crasher. Again, shout out to Ryan Sachs for identifying this style of deck super early on and identifying Festival Crasher as the best red common. And I'm definitely there myself. And I also think like the community will never get there. And so you can also wheel this card, which is kind of wild. But it really is the most important piece at common for the red base spells deck. Right. Well, and that's why it's a format defining card, right? It makes yes. that archetype tick. It is the thing that lets you do that archetype. That at common and then seize the storm at uncommon. Yeah, for sure. Dual craft trainer is up next. This is three and a white for the three through first strike. And whenever you have coven, you can give a creature double strike. I am on dual craft trainer, I think, as the best white uncommon at this point. And I think this is the card that is the scariest card to face out of coven decks and just white decks in general. It's just good in most white decks, period. Yeah, I mean, the fact that this is a 3-3 first strike on its own, which is already tough to deal with, but it just enables an attack so often the turn it comes into play, and that attack is so often going to be for at least four, sometimes six damage that you just can't really interact with, right? It's making Candle Grove Witch double strike, and now that's a you know 2-2 flying double striker or whatever. Like, it really does press the advantage the most for those aggressive white decks, I think. Next up, we've got Flip the Switch, which is two and a blue for the counter spell. Counter it unless you pay four, and then you make a decayed zombie token. This is a really interesting one, right? And we're going to take a look at this again a little later in the episode. But the fact that this is good in the format, I think, says a lot about the format, right? It says there's a lot of instant speed three mana things to do. Because there's no way a counter spell is good and limited unless you have other things to do with your mana when you're holding it up. I think it's also a nod to just how rawly powerful making a decayed zombie is. If you land a flip the switch, you're essentially getting a one and a half or maybe even a two for one. Well, I'm going to add a third point here, which is look at the first three cards on our list. Diagraph Horde, Eccentric Farmer, and Organ Hoarder. All three cards that once they hit the battlefield have already accrued a ton of value. And so you're very reluctant to go, all right, I'm going to fire off my Defenestrate on one of these. But getting to counter one of those powerful ETB creatures is really like your only chance at one for one with those cards. Yeah, that's a great point that I hadn't really thought about. Next up, we've got Ecstatic Awakener. Um, I mean, what can be said about this card that hasn't already? It's just, it's very unassuming as a one mana one one, but then again, provides so much synergy with Disturb, with Decayed, because you've got these expendable bodies lying around. And once you do, you get to turn your one mana one one into a four four. It's got Threat of Activation. It really does allow your black decks to start the curve early and press that advantage. Well, and right above it is Flip the Switch. Those cards naturally pair super well together, right? If your opponent doesn't want to play anything, boom, flip your Ecstatic Awakener. Great. And and Flip the Switch provides you the Decayed token for the Ecstatic Awakener as well. Yeah, best friends forever. We talked about Festival Crasher, Seize the Storm already. Seize the Storm is here, but I think that gets lumped in with Festival Crasher as turning on the red decks. And then so finally, mm-hmm. we're going to wrap up with Silver Bolt and Moonrager Slash. And both of those deal three damage. And I think, in my mind at least, four is the magic number in the format. So the fact that four toughness survives both of those cards is a huge deal to me. Yeah, it's another it's another four than six, I think, for me. Like, And we, there's not a lot of six toughness stuff, but Drown Yard, Amalgam, as you already sort of pointed out, surviving, burn down the house, surviving, burn the accursed. But I agree. I think, I think four is definitely the magic number when you look at Slash and Bolt. All right, sweet. So hopefully that gives you a picture of the format and how we're thinking about it and how we're figuring it out. So then diving into synergy theory, first quadrant here is mechanics. And so one of the things that we did when we originally talked about this episode was had key questions. So we're just going to run through those key questions again, because I do think these are the questions I'm asking myself, you know, when I'm drafting for synergy. And it's really important to know what you should be thinking about. So when you're trying to think about mechanics, you want to think about how a card lines up with the mechanics in the set. Does it interact favorably with more than one mechanic? Those are the kinds of things you're trying to find. So if a card is at the intersection of multiple mechanics, it's going to be really powerful. And if a card also just is hyper efficient with one mechanic, that's another signal that it's going to be super synergistic with that mechanic. So the five mechanics we've got in power level order, number one, decayed zombies. Number two, disturb. Number three, flashback. Number four, coven. And number five, day, night. So how does this affect the format? First up with Decayed, this speeds the format up, right? I mean, I think when we all looked at this mechanic in the 
crash course or in the set review, we thought this is going to be a resource, right? Thinking about it as energy. And I think that's the right thing to think about, but then also just recognizing, oh, flip the switch is counter target spell deal two damage to the opponent, which was like a rare in Guilds of Ravnica. That's kind of wild. So it does speed up the format because you're getting these incidental chunks of, of two damage off of these cards. Right. And also, you know, people were saying, well, they can't block. They're not really creatures. But the fact that they threaten damage, especially if you've already put pressure on the opponent's life total, makes them block in a real way in that the opponent has to leave creatures back. They can't race you without the threat of a crackback for six or eight from decayed zombies. You know, if you play a lot of the blue and black cards that turn these things out. Yeah. And they've got synergy with stuff that that either wants sack fodder or wants stuff to die like Awakener and Opportunist. And those are already strong cards in the format period that just get better in the light of decayed. Right. So decayed being good, I think, makes everything that makes a decayed zombie at least half a power level grade higher than it would normally be. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's just plus two damage like we talked about, but that's great. And other times they're a resource and that's even better. Next up is disturb and flashback. These are just awesome slam dunk limited mechanics, right? It's a two for one stapled onto a magic card. And so if you didn't already like if you aren't already looking at a card like, you know, organ hoarder or eccentric farmer as being super powerful and in a set without disturb and flashback, they would be significantly less powerful, I would say. But they would still be good, right? They would still be good. They'd just be like, you know, clear two for ones, but sometimes they can be three for ones or four for ones. And that's when they just get absolutely broken. And that's in, in the presence of disturb and flashback. And one of the things I think that is The best about this format is that both of these mechanics and organ hoarder and eccentric farmer, you know, being in the format could potentially have just turned the format into a grind fest, right? Who can accrue the most value? But I think R&D did a great job of making sure there were enough aggressive cards and aggressive, you know, mechanics in the set that you really can't just try to accrue value because a lot of the best cards also affect the board. And I think that makes the gameplay a lot better. Right. I mean, I wrote an article for CFB last week or two weeks ago about blue white being in my mind the best aggressive deck in the format. And, you know, that's off the the back of the you know, the gold uncommon being able to tap down stuff when you cast stuff in the graveyard. But just the fact that you don't need, you know, you don't need removal in those decks because you're just going, okay, trade off my creature and now my creature comes back as a flyer. Trade off this creature, tap down that thing, use blessed defiance as bone splinters. Like those are like high creature aggressive decks in my mind. And the fact that then you get the bonus of, hey, I can grind if I have to because all of my cards are two for ones also. Yeah, sweet. Coven next up, which is, I think, in my mind, a really good aggressive mechanic that helps keep Disturb and Flashback in check. If you've never been on the receiving end of a green-white Coven curve out, it is nasty and backbreaking. And I think, you know, you really need to be able to interact with green white via early cheap removal sometimes when they're curving out or you just get smashed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those like cheap evasive two drops like Candlegrove Witch or Harvestide Sentry, I think can pack a lot of damage in early. And then lastly, we've got day and night here in my mind is largely irrelevant, which is probably also why I keep accidentally passing and it's <laughs> night because I just don't care about it. But I do think, you know, you do care about starting the day night cycle more if you have cards like Olivia's Midnight Ambush that give you a really true bonus for it being night or something. You don't want to rely on your opponent to start that cycle for you. You want to be the person to have some shady travelers to make that cycle start. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair point for sure. I, I honestly think like day night for me has been mostly impressive in blue red decks where you've got like obsessive astronomer on turn two and then you just pass with your flip the switches or your moon rager slashes or your electric revelations and also get to bend a couple flashback stuff. And then, you know, turn five, your opponent cast diagraph horde and ruins your fun. Right. And we've already talked about werewolves falling flat because of that premium removal. And I think werewolves falling flat is another reason that day night fell flat. Yep. Agreed. So let's take a look at some cards that interact well with multiple mechanics in the set. We've already talked about Diagraph Horde, but just think about these mechanics. It makes two decayed zombies, which we know are powerful. It completely hoses Disturb and <laughs> Flashback, which are going to be mechanics that are included in almost every deck that's good. And then it's just a 3-4 body to block the things with Coven. Like that is such a stable board when you stick Diagraph Horde against a green-white deck. And we've talked about Eccentric Farmer and Organ Hoarder doing the thing as well, interacting favorably with Disturb and Flashback. And that's really important. Right. And I think it's important to note that these are two of the more synergistic cards with the mechanics that are also just great magic cards on their own, right? So these are going to be huge grades on Quadrant Theory as well as Synergy Theory. Right. So let's look at them in these four sections of synergy theory as well. What's going on next? So the next quadrant we're going to take a look at is on color cards. So when you're trying to look for synergy and on color cards, 
questions you want to ask yourself. How many cards at common or uncommon of the same color does this card interact favorably with? So the more the merrier, right? It's going to be more synergistic the more cards it interacts with. And does it make multiple cards of the same color perform better? So you're trying to find cards that make other cards better. So Festival Crasher as a red card that cares about spells makes a lot of other red spells cards better. So certainly all of the burn spells like Burn the Accursed, like Cathartic Pyre, like Play with Fire, Neonate's Rush, Moon Rager Slash. But then even thinking about, you know, tricks, Lunar Frenzy. And I think the one that you don't actually have on this list, but I think once I have like, you know, I'm in that range of three Festival Crashers, a stolen vitality or two can really push a lot of damage with Festival Crashers. And they're so hard to block. They're so hard to interact with in these decks that take advantage of this kind of synergy. 100%. And Seize the Storm here as well. You know, it's the same list of cards that Festival Crasher and Seize the Storm work well with. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important in this quadrant to know ahead of time which are the colors that are self synergistic. And I think in this format, that is white and red. Those are the two colors that play best with themselves. And obviously, blue and black, just because those cards are all busted. But I think even more than the blue and black cards being busted, those cards play well with themselves and with a bunch of other colors. But the white cards play best with other white cards, heavy white, and the red cards play best with other red cards, heavy red. Yep. Moving on to the next quadrant, which is off color cards, questions to ask yourself. Again, how many cards are common or uncommon of different colors does this card interact favorably with? So again, the more the merrier. And does it make multiple cards of other colors perform better within multiple color pairs? And another thing that you should be thinking about here, just in addition to the number of cards and the number of interactions, are there super powerful interactions maybe between Mm. cards of other colors? So when I first made this list, it was Ikoria, right? And there was the wombo combo of giving Porky Parrot Death Touch in a number of different ways. So something like that that just builds a premium threat is also important just in addition to sheer number of interactions. Right. Lots of pockets of synergy are are great. But then if you get that just like wombo two card combo, which we don't often get, um, and and you probably aren't going to get with cards like, I mean, I guess you could think of Festival Crasher plus Lunar Frenzy as being like a big wombo combo. And that was the last card on that list. But a lot of times you're going to be looking at just little small interactions that make you know, your deck the greater, greater than the sum of its parts. So I think the champion here is Lunark Veteran, right? This works with so many different things. It's good with anything that puts cards in the graveyard. And there are so many cards that put things in the graveyard in the set. Yep, exactly. I mean, I think there's going to be a, you know, you can play a drinking game every time we talk about Organ Hoarder and Eccentric Farmer in this episode, but those being, you know, top of the list there. But really anything, there's lots of ways to just, you know, mill yourself or, you know, be able to manipulate the top of your library, that type type of deal. It also works super well with cards that want you to have bodies around, like Larder Zombie, Scob Wrangler, Siege Zombie, that cycle of cards that want you to tap three bodies. This is a body that wants to exist on the battlefield, provide some incidental advantage, and then can also be used in other ways like that. Things that want you to sacrifice cards like Ecstatic Awakener or Flesh Taker. It works super well with build arounds like Ghoulish Procession or even Ominous Roost. I think even more than Ghoulish Procession, but both of those, I think, go very well with Lunark Veteran. Cards that have Coven, because this gives you a one power creature, right? Zero and one, and then I think four or greater, right? It's easy to get two and three, but getting the zero, one, or four to create Coven, I think is, you know, a little bit of a hoop to jump through, and this really helps out with that. Right. And I think, you know, the word on the street when Lunar Veteran was first getting talked about was that it was a blue white or a white black card. And I've sort of just found that it's awesome in white green as well. I still have been a little underwhelmed with it in red white aggro decks. I agree. And I think most importantly, it works well with a lot of the format defining cards discussed earlier in the episode. Right. Yeah. Uh, that list of cards that are the best cards in the format, Lunark Veteran is right at home with most of those for sure. Yeah, check, check, check. And the last quadrant we're going to take a look at here is strategy compatibility. So questions to ask yourself when you're talking about this quadrant for synergy theory is what types of decks do cards want to go in? Or where does a card fall on the aggro mid-range control spectrum? So can you get all aggressive cards in your aggressive deck? And you know, one of the things that we see so often as content creators, you know, when we're doing deck text or other things like that is that, you know, people send you a deck and it's immediately obvious to you or I, like they're like, I don't know, I'm really struggling with the last two cuts here. And they've got two control cards in their aggro deck. And it's like, boom, boom, get those cards out of there because they don't work well with your other cards. But just making sure that your cards are on the same page towards a cohesive goal. I think another important thing to think about here is how does the style of deck the card wants to go in line up with the speed of the format and the majority of cards in the format of color pairs? Like essentially, how compatible is it with the format? So in terms of 
I think a really good idea is a card like maybe Homestead Courage, the single white. Like I was really excited about this card. The single white, put a plus plus one counter on it, gains vigilance until end of turn, and then it has flashback for a single white. Or something like the 2-4 spider with reach that dies into a 1-2 spider. Those I think I would identify as good cards that aren't good in this format. How do you feel about that? No, I think those are great hits because the spider provides you value after it dies and it's not pressuring the opponent at all. And I think a lot of the best cards want you to get ahead, stay ahead. It's much easier to play offense in the format than it is to play defense. And then the Homestead Courage is awkward because it wants to go in a white deck that's aggressive, but there's not great ways to get things in the graveyard in most of your white aggressive decks other than white blue so it's kind of only a blue white gold card in my mind i mean it goes in green white as well it just doesn't do enough the problem i think with it is that the format is so tempo based and the removal is so good right if we go back to one of our tenets like the removal is so good and that's like what you're thinking about when like all of your best commons or uncommons or the raw power when the removal is so good it's so easy to two for one your opponent with the homestead courage that i just think you can't do it whereas in formats with maybe clunkier removal that card would really shine yeah that makes total sense to me so let's take a look at some cards that are good under strategy compatibility first one is neonates rush that's the tuna red deal one damage to a creature deal one to the opponent and then draw a card costs less if you have a vampire but who cares about that part (laughs) props to the data for pointing this card out before i understood it Again, like we're going to try to start looking at data a little more around here. And I do feel like I have done that this format and it's been helpful. But, you know, that was the big outlier and it kind of makes sense to me now. So this is a red cantering spell, which red is super interested in. And there's a lot of good X ones to kill in the format, you know, stuff like picking off your opponent's ecstatic awakener, Scob Wrangler, Lunark Veteran. A lot of those format defining cards we talked about have one toughness. Yeah, Neonate Source is great. And I agree, I would not have thought about it if it weren't for the data. And now I'm just always like, yeah, every red deck wants at least one copy of this card. Also, Flip the Switch. This is another perfect example of strategy compatibility because Flip the Switch is not an inherently synergistic card, right? And counterspells aren't normally good and limited. So why is this card good? Well, there's so many things to do with your mana at instant speed in this format, right? There's a lot of good removal in black. We talked about the Ecstatic Awakener activation. It pairs well with, you know, red removal or uh, electric revelation in terms of I'm passing with stuff to do. And even inherently in its own color, it matches up well with passing with four mana up and either you have Revenge of the Drowned or flip the switch to interact with your opponent's stuff. Well, and blue, I think, is also super interested just in the idea of accruing decayed zombies. So you just get that one and a half for one when you stick it as well. And the format is very tempo based, right? And so it lines up with sort of the overall idea of the format where when you can nab that, you know, that four drop or that five drop and especially being able to nab that, as we talked about, that ETB ability before it hits the battlefield, when you get to counter organ hoarder, you just feel like a million bucks. Yeah, 100%. So let's actually stick some of these magic cards under synergy theory here. So let's take a look at the lens of synergy theory as well as putting them under the lens of quadrant theory. So The dream card for you is going to be a card that's powerful under quadrant theory and highly synergistic, as we've talked about in synergy theory here. But it's going to be most useful, synergy theory that is, synergy theory is going to be most useful to help you identify cards that are not just necessarily intrinsically powerful under quadrant theory, but are better than they look as an individual card. So first up, let's put Festival Crasher to the test here. Where does this land under Quadrant Theory? Okay, so if we look at development, that that gets a check, right? We're happy about Festival Crasher in the developing stages. That's where it's going to be at its best. You get Crasher down early and then set yourself up to have some big attacks in the, the mid to late game. At parity, it's fine. Generally, you're not thrilled with trading Festival Crasher off, though. So I think it gets a fairly low score under parity for Quadrant Theory. This is not the card I want to break open a board stall. Well, and if you're at parity, in theory, that means you're probably like out of gas or maybe in top decking mode, and that is not a good spot for Festival Crasher. Ahead, it's pretty good here. It is scary to block a Festival Crasher as the opposing player. I think it gets, you know, a slightly above average grade there. Yeah, and then when you're behind, it's not great. I mean, a 1-3 body can block or trade off maybe, but it's not going to be great when you're behind. That's really not where you want it to be. It's an aggressive card. So under Quadrant Theory, Festival Crasher gets what? A grade of, I would give this a C, right? Yeah, C, C minus. Yeah, I think that makes sense. But under Synergy Theory, I think it gets a much higher grade. It's, I mean, it's sneaky good. Right. So mechanics, not overtly interacting with a lot of mechanics there. I think it gets a fairly low score in that sense, because not a lot of the mechanics are 
spell based necessarily and it's not doing anything necessarily with day night like really you want to be using the spells on your own turn so i think it doesn't do much there yeah just flashback i'd say flashback points to okay i could get you know two triggers from one card for my festival crashers then when you take a look at on color synergy it's through the roof there right because Mm -hmm. it is the card that makes the red decks tick it makes all your other red spells better and it's a huge threat once you have those other red spells in your deck yeah, and off-color the same, right? You look at all the things that Blue gets to do, Revenge of the Drowned, it makes Startle really good, whatever, Consider as a cheap cantrip for this, um, gets your your black removal to maybe two for one, right? It's a really hard card to block in that sense because so many decks have such good instants and sorceries. Right, or even things like Hungry for More in red-black or Shadow Beast Sighting in green. Oh, There's yeah. all these other things that pump it up just enough that when you're in red spells, you can go to every other color. I think maybe with a slight exception of white, but definitely blue, black, and green all play super well with the Festival Crasher spells deck. And strategy compatibility. How does it line up there? It lines up great, right? Red wants to be spells, so it's the most important card for red decks to be ticked. So it gets huge marks in strategy compatibility as well. And we've talked about the format being tempo-based. This is a very tempo-oriented card, right? If you get two of these on the battlefield and you cast two spells, you're pushing 10 damage. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, you can just have like, oops, lethal sometimes when your opponent decides, ah, I'm not going to block. And it's like, nope, that that's the thing that's going to kill you right now. And especially with those like trampling tricks, too. And there's so many cantrips, Neonates Rush, Electric Revelation. And then you move into other colors, you get that, too. Like, yeah, the card just through the roof has strategy compatibility. All right, let's take a look at flip the switch under quadrant theory. What does that get in development? The boo thumbs down, right? I don't want to be holding up mana to counter stuff in developing stages. I want to develop my board. Yeah, parity, it's fine, maybe. You know, you're probably going to have mana open, but you also can get to that awkward point in the game where your opponent also just has the four mana to pay for a thing. Yep, Uh, when you're ahead, full marks, I'd say, right? It just like keeps you ahead, stops your opponent from being able to stabilize. And behind, really bad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. You de- like when you top deck a counter spell when you're trying to stabilize, it is the worst. Yeah. So I think grade wise, you know, if you're grading this card in a vacuum, this is like a D, something like that. D plus maybe. Well, that's usually what we give. I mean, this is a pretty big anomaly, I would say, for how good a counter spell is in limited. They're generally not good. Yeah. So if you take a look at it under synergy theory, mechanics. It's super good with decayed zombies, right? We know how important those are, and you get a decayed zombie when you stick it. And more decayed zombies are better because the more of those you have, the better your things that want them are, your larder zombies, your siege zombies, your scob wranglers, etc. Also, we talked about those other good cards. This isn't necessarily with mechanics, but the fact that they hose, you know, those powerful cards like Organ Hoarder and Eccentric Farmer before they hit the battlefield, I think is another sort of mark in its favor. On color? Well, it actually plays pretty well because so much of what blue wants to do is operated in instant speed when you look at commons like revenge of the drowned or even a startle like it's nice to be able to hold those up and be like okay i can interact with the board or i can interact with what my opponent is going to play and i'm happy to do both and i think it gets even better when you start to look at off color cards because so many of those other colors have things at three mana right ecstatic awakeners busted three mana moon raiders slash in red three mana green a little less so i found it's kind of awkward in green blue and even blue white to a certain extent not the best home for it necessarily but with black and red really shines with off color cards yeah and strategy compatibility as we talked about it was one of the cards we looked at it's just really really strong in terms of what the format as a whole is trying to do interacting with decayed as a mechanic is super nice um, and just being able to operate at instant speed is something that a lot of color pairs can do Right. And it's not quite B minus territory, I think, under synergy theory, but this is a super good C plus when you start to look at it under the lens of synergy theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and that also just speaks to like how powerful blue is as a color that like this is a really good card, but it's still what the fifth best blue common in the set. Yeah, I think so. Right. All right. Let's take a look at one more card here under Quadrant Theory. One we haven't talked about in the episode yet. This is Shipwreck Sifter. It's one of the blue for the one, two. When it ETBs, you draw a card, discard a card. And then if you discarded a spirit or a disturbed card, it gets a plus one, plus one counter. All right. So Quadrant Theory under developing stages. Well, I mean, it depends, right? Because this card is sort of wildly varied, right? If you are playing this as a two mana, one, two that loots, no thank you. If this is a two mana, two, three draw card, draw a creature card, draw a flying creature spell, then I'm really into it, right? So it depends in the developing stages how good this is. 
Right. But I think in general, you would not give this a great score. If you just told me you were going to put Shifrex Sifters in your deck without considering Synergy, this would get a, a really bad development score. Right. This is a, a bad body. It's a nearly irrelevant body. Parity, not great, right? I mean, it's maybe going to dig you towards some actions. Fine. I think medium score there. It's not even really good when you're ahead, right? This body is just so inconsequential. Well, and, but if you got it at that 2-3, but even at the 2-3, it's not great when you're ahead. And behind, it's also a fairly relevant body. I think looking at Shipwreck Sifters in its own vacuum under Quadrant Theory, it's not a great card. I don't remember what I gave this in the set review. I would imagine I gave it like a Synergy C or something like that. Right. Yeah, I, I probably even gave it a lower grade. I, I was not excited about this card for a long time, but... I do think looking at it under the, the lens of synergy theory does help you understand how good this is, right? If you think about the mechanics, well, first and foremost, it interacts very face up favorably with Disturb. That's where it's at its best. Right. And even if you don't have that Disturb card, pitching a flashback card is not the worst. You know, you end no. up with the one, two, you've kind of drawn a card and then maybe this grows a little later. You know, if you have some other ways to pitch Disturb cards down the road. Right. Looking at on color, well, it really does like get full marks here because not only does it interact with Disturb and that blue does get to have a lot of Disturb creatures, but they interact well with themselves, right? The more shipwreck sifters you have, the better because they can grow as the game progresses and they can pitch themselves to each other. Yes, I think on color and specifically the the important point is that shipwreck sifters work well with more shipwreck sifters is great. I, I want five shipwreck sifters, not two in my deck, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One, maybe one, not three is a better or three, not one is a better thing. Five feels like you hit the jackpot. <laughs> <laughs> and then taking a look at off color cards, I think, you know, white, it's pairing obviously well with here. I think that's the only color that really provides a lot of off color stuff. But white does provide a lot. So this is one of those secret gold cards that we talk about a lot. And you can really start to see that when you compare it with the off color cards, right? These, those other colors don't provide you with disturbed creatures the way white does. Right. I mean, I think the only other thing I would think about is like blue green ish because blue red doesn't really want to have a high creature count and blue black. I think you're hoping to be doing more decayed stuff than disturb and so you're happy to have you know disturb but you don't want a card like shipwreck sifters that's really like okay i need as many disturb cards as possible which is why i think its best home is blue white yeah all right so really cool tool there that you can use if that's a new concept for you um i think hopefully it's helpful it certainly helped me frame synergy in a way that made sense to me well, and I think the more that we see sets like this, and we're not going to see a lot of sets like AFR, which aren't super synergistic, it's really helpful to figure out, okay, how am I supposed to evaluate the power level of a card like Lunark Veteran, like Shipwreck Sifters, like Festival Crasher, that don't quite fall under Quadrant Theory, which is a really helpful tool, but then sort of doesn't paint the full picture. It, it, it sort of shortchanges some cards that I think a lot of people might write off as hey, isn't that a bad card? It's like, well, in some decks, sure. But in other decks, it's really going to shine. It's really going to be a linchpin and it, and it can sort of warp the way that you're going to be picking cards the rest of the draft. For sure. And we made this disclaimer a lot on our first Synergy Theory episode, but this is not us dunking on Quadrant Theory or poo-poo oh, no. Quadrant Theory. Like, love Quadrant Theory. It was my first episode of LR. That's the thing you need to master first. If you don't have that card evaluation skill down, you got to get that down before you try to do Synergy Theory. All right, five points to sum up understanding a format deeply here. Yeah. So first you need to identify those powerful cards, mechanics and colors. So for Innistrad Midnight Hunt, you know, blue and black are those two really heavy hitting colors. Decayed and Disturb, those best mechanics. And then that list of format defining cards we came up with. If you can figure that stuff out for yourself, that'll start to paint the picture for, you know, how the rest of the cards fall into place in the format. Number two, if a color is lower on power level, try to identify how and when it can work. That can give you a huge edge, right? As everyone's fighting over for blue and black, props to Ryan Sachs for busting open red belt. Props to Ryan Sachs for busting open red spells in mid. Number three, identify what strategies those cards and colors best lend themselves to and what that likely means for the format metagame. So again, those powerful cards, what are they asking of you? What do they do best? And that's going to go ahead and shape what's happening in the metagame. So, for example, in Innistrad Midnight Hunt, get ahead, stay ahead is really good because there aren't a lot of catch up mechanics if you haven't already affected the board. Right. And I think the other one is red has to be spells to compete because the removal is too good for werewolves. And red's common creatures other than Crasher are 
all largely junky. Number four, identify what other role player type cards, those powerful cards and mechanics make better that you can potentially pick up later, right? So knowing that on the wheel, you can get electric revelation is super important for the red spells deck ticking because festival crasher and seize the storm are so powerful that pulls something like electric revelation up in value but you're going to be able to get it late. Right. There's something in here, I think, about identifying the cards that are powerful, but that you can get later or that like, you know, you want one copy of Electric Revelation, but you don't have to pick it up fourth or maybe those festival crashers can wheel that sort of thing. And that leads into the fifth and final point, which is once you know what's good or underdrafted, that's when drafting with preferences starts to enter into the draft, right? That's when you can start to go. Even though Eaten Alive is the best card in this pack, I'm going to take a slight hit because I just know that nine out of 10 times I'm getting pushed off of black in these drafts. And I'd rather just do this thing where I take, you know, Moonrager Slash and I can float this Neonate's Rush or whatever. Right. And so there's a lot going on here, right? I mean, there's understanding a format, rules of the road, there's picking out the best cards. And then once you know all that, you know, you can start to use synergy theory to help explain why the stuff is good and maybe what other cards you haven't thought about that makes better. So a lot to unpack here. Hopefully it gives you some ideas, concepts to roll around in the old noggin as you're drafting in Astrod Midnight Hunt for what is probably the last, I don't know, there's only two or three more weeks of this format. It's ridiculous. It's wild. Yeah. I mean, if our calculations are correct, we have 50 takes next week and then we're off to preview season for Val, which is wild. That is insane. Yeah. I mean, it's good. Good for content creators. I don't know how good it is for the limited community at large, um, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm excited to have a new set coming in. Heck yeah. All right. Great place to wrap us up. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thank you to ChannelFireball.com for sponsoring this podcast. If you're heading over to CFB for any and all purchases or signing up for CFB Pro, please use the code LOL when you check out to let them know that we sent you there. You can check us out streaming. Ben, it's fall break, baby. I'm excited to see your streams. Twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome for him. Twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware for me. Mr. is spelled out for Ben. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later.